Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Monday, July 1st, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 25. This episode is brought to you by my fertility awareness education initiative, FAM Taught Me. I'm sharing my fertility awareness work to educate cycling people about the advantages of autonomous menstrual management and to take charge of one's fate and future. You can also follow me on Instagram at FamTaughtMe to learn more. I'm available for one-on-one consultations, and I'd love to work with you on decoding your unique menstrual challenges. Feel free to reach out if you think you could benefit from some time together, and I look forward to working with you. This episode is going to get into an extremely important and undervalued topic, why ovulation matters. Not why ovulation matters for getting pregnant, but why ovulation matters for your health, happiness, and well-being. Often when we talk about the menstrual cycle, or I ask people about their menstrual cycle, everyone assumes that we're talking about bleeding. But during menstruation, there isn't a whole lot going on hormonally. In contrast, ovulation is the main hormonal event of the menstrual cycle. Yet we're taught very little about it. It's not discussed in sex education, and most people don't think about it until they're trying to conceive for the first time. This leaves ovulation out of the equation when we talk about what it means to have a healthy menstrual cycle. Most of us don't know that the hormones you make during the ovulatory process are the only way that you make them in the levels you need, period. I think this does a great disservice to people who menstruate and doesn't allow us to make the best healthcare decisions because we aren't educated on what the benefits of ovulation actually are. We're taught that basically ovulation is optional and using contraceptives to suppress ovulation doesn't do any harm. If we understand ovulation more as a society, we would be in charge of our fertility and able to understand when we're fertile and when we're not through observations that we can make. This has implications for reproductive justice and equity in greater access to body literacy and body autonomy. My aim for this podcast is to, two parts, to explain the process of ovulation, not just as a physical event, but also as the main hormonal event of the entire menstrual cycle. And I'll discuss why you cannot ovulate more than once per cycle. Then I'll get into why ovulation is important for long-term health and how these hormones are connected to other systems of the body beyond the reproductive system. I'll talk about how ovulation can impact your mental, physical, and emotional state. So let's get into it. The menstrual cycle begins with the first day of a menstrual bleed, where estrogen levels are low. The follicular phase is the first part of the menstrual cycle, which is where a maturation process of the egg occurs, and the conclusion being ovulation. Ovulation typically happens midway through the cycle, immediately following the hormonal changes in the follicular phase. During the follicular phase, the uterus is in its proliferative phase, that is, building back up endometrial or uterine lining in preparation for ovulation. In the ovaries, eggs develop in fluid sacs, which are called follicles. Follicles develop for several cycles before they're ready to release their egg and some will never release an egg at all. Ovulation is a physical event where the ovarian follicle ruptures and releases what is called the secondary oocyte ovarian cell. 
this does not happen at random, but is instead under the hormonal regulatory control of the endocrine system. This means that the hormonal event of ovulation involves more than just the ovaries. It involves a complex feedback loop system between the brain and the reproductive system, particularly in the hypothalamus and pituitary glands. You could even say that ovulation begins in the brain. It is necessary to discuss what happens in the follicular phase because this is where the feedback loop system for each ovulation originates. It all begins in the hypothalamus, where gonadotropin-releasing hormone stimulates the anterior pituitary gland to release a hormone called follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH, and thus FSH levels begin to rise. We call this interaction of the feedback loops the hypothalamus-pituitary axis, and I may refer to it as the HPA axis a few times in here. This FSH hormone sends a message to your ovaries that we're looking to stimulate the ovarian follicles, mature a follicle, and release an oocyte. Your follicles are always in various stages of development, but only a few are the ones chosen to mature as candidates for the egg for this particular cycle. FSH causes these selected follicles to develop special granulosa cells. These cells surround the oocytes, and their most important job is to begin secreting estrogen. The preovulatory follicle is the body's primary source of estrogen, accounting for more than 90% of estrogen production in the follicular phase. Here's where we find the first positive feedback loop. As the granulosa cells in the ovarian follicle secrete more and more estrogen, the estrogen levels peak. And this actually begins to then inhibit the secretion of follicle-stimulating hormone. So if we think this through for a second, the brain released FSH, which caused the ovarian follicles to develop and secrete estrogen, which then had a negative feedback on FSH, so FSH levels fall. This fall in FSH levels also causes the smaller, less developed follicles, which were competing to be the egg for ovulation, to die off. About halfway through the follicular phase, one follicle becomes more dominant than all the others in their stages of development. So now, FSH has fallen, and estrogen is rounding off at its peak. When estrogen levels are sufficiently high, a message is then sent back to the hypothalamus that we need more gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which will again stimulate the pituitary gland, but this time it will release another hormone, luteinizing hormone. By the time luteinizing hormone is released to induce ovulation, estrogen levels are already beginning to fall from their peak level. On average, ovulation occurs 28 to 36 hours after the onset of the LH surge, or 12 hours after LH reaches its peak level. When you use an ovulation predictor kit, they're testing for luteinizing hormones specifically. Luteinizing hormone stimulates enzymes secreted by the chosen follicle to degrade, and this causes the follicle tissue to open up and a hole called the stigma will form inside the follicle. Ovulation begins when the secondary oocyte exits the follicle and into the abdominal cavity. 
Some people even feel this rupture, which is often described as ovulatory pain. The fallopian tubes, which are not actually attached to the ovaries, will collect the egg and send it on its way. The fringe cilia tissue at the end of the fallopian tubes are activated by the sex hormones, swelling with blood and sweeping gently over the ovaries to usher the oocyte into the tube. More cilia inside of the fallopian tube move the oocyte towards the uterus. The burst ovarian follicle has now done its job of releasing the egg. It quickly folds in on itself and transforms into a whole new temporary organ, the corpus luteum. The corpus luteum is a secreting body which produces high levels of progesterone. Progesterone is necessary to support the endometrial walls as well as a fertilized egg. During pregnancy, the placenta will eventually take over production of progesterone from the corpus luteum. If the egg is unfertilized, the corpus luteum stops secreting progesterone, degenerates, and when progesterone levels fall, the endometrium falls and the next menstruation occurs. Occasionally, I'm asked about a second ovulation. Is this possible? The answer is no. And this is precisely because of those feedback loops that I've been talking about. The loops are either positive, turning hormones on, or negative, turning hormones off. When your corpus luteum releases progesterone, it sends a message to the brain to suppress gonadotropin release from the pituitary gland. So the two hormones responsible for triggering the process of ovulation, which we just discussed, are follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. They are directly inhibited by the progesterone made from the corpus luteum. And seeing that the corpus luteum can only develop post-ovulation and releases progesterone until your next menstruation, the event can only occur once per cycle. People can, however, have twins through one single hormonal event of ovulation. With a little too much follicle-stimulating hormone, the ovaries can release more than one egg, resulting in twins, triplets, or more. There is research into how genetic factors play a role in the prevalence of fraternal twins and follicle-stimulating hormone levels. Because the fertile window only occurs once and results in ovulation in a healthy cycle, Identifying when you are fertile can be determined in a scientific window. After ovulation, you will not be fertile again until the next cycle. Ovulation also cannot be predicted. This is why we use diagnostic and retroactive signs in fertility awareness to determine the fertile window. The follicular, or pre-ovulatory phase, is a variable number of days. The luteal, or post-ovulatory phase, is always fixed. This means anything that can affect your hormones can affect your ability to ovulate. Environmental factors like travel, stress, exercise, or lack of sleep can affect ovulation as well as internal factors like your diet or an underlying medical condition. A delayed ovulation or an anovulatory cycle can happen occasionally, but if you stop ovulating entirely or you consistently have trouble ovulating as seen through really long cycles, Serious health conditions must be investigated. Let's review the process of ovulation. The process begins in the brain. The hypothalamus tells the pituitary gland to make FSH. FSH stimulates the developing ovarian follicles to secrete estrogen. Estrogen inhibits FSH and tells the hypothalamus pituitary to release LH. 
Luteinizing hormone causes the mature follicle to burst and the egg to release. The follicle inverts on itself, creating the corpus luteum, releasing progesterone. Progesterone inhibits FSH and LH, telling the HPA to stop releasing them and preventing the event from occurring again. If the egg is unfertilized, the corpus luteum degenerates and progesterone falls two weeks later, and thus the menstrual cycle concludes with the bleed. The second half of this podcast is going to talk about what else these ovulatory hormones do for us. We're trying to redefine regular ovulation as a vital sign. This is because ovulation is the only way we can make the steroid hormones we need for our brain, our bones, our skin and hair, our heart, our thyroid, our breasts, our metabolism, our mood, and more. Though these hormonal changes are essential for a successful implantation and pregnancy, they have far-reaching impacts on and interrelationships with several body systems. The presence of regular, robust ovulation is a sign of good overall health. It can even protect us from osteoporosis, cancer, stroke, and cardiovascular disease. First, let's talk about the physical effects of ovulation. I'm going to start with bones because this has the most obvious connection once we explain it. Our bone tissues initially start out by building peak bone density and then renew themselves through a complex remodeling process over the course of our lives. In an ideal bone health setting, you build a strong skeleton with well-mineralized bone mineral density during adolescence so that age-related normal bone loss will not cause osteoporosis. Estrogen is a menstruator's dominant bone hormone because it's responsible for the development of peak bone mineral density, which occurs during adolescence. This is due to the onset of menarche, or the beginning of the cycling of your hormones due to the menstrual cycle. However, as we've discussed in this podcast, estrogen is only available for a short window of time during the menstrual cycle in the follicular phase, and is found in relatively low levels otherwise. When estrogen is high, it prevents bone loss by decreasing bone resorption. Bone resorption is essentially the removal of old bone. When estrogen levels drop, this stimulates a rapid increase in bone resorption, which would lead to bone loss in most of the menstrual cycle. However, this is where the importance of progesterone comes in. Progesterone stimulates the body to create more bone matrix and results in bone formation. The ovulatory cycle therefore provides what we call a bone balance. During the fertile window, as estrogen rises, we have the prevention of bone resorption or bone loss. When those levels drop, we would lose bone if it were not for progesterone, which stimulates bone formation. Ovulatory disturbances resulting in anovulation or shorter luteal phases have a risk of losing more bone than one should during their adult years. Sometimes as high as 4-6% to of bone mineral density per year can be lost from anovulation. Another study of spinal bone mineral density found that those with less than a median proportion of the normal ovulatory cycles lose almost 1% of spinal bone mineral density per year. We can now understand that progesterone is estrogen's necessary partner in bone health. 
Without regular ovulation, we don't make either of these essential hormones in the levels we need to protect our bone mineral density in adolescence and young adulthood, which leads to bone degenerative problems later in life. Ovulation has pretty interesting effects on the cardiovascular system as well, but rarely is the connection made for people that our hormones have any purpose beyond the reproductive system. Progesterone specifically has vasodilatory effects. It lowers blood pressure, inhibits coronary hyperactivity, and helps the body excrete sodium. These mechanisms are how progesterone can improve circulation. And interestingly enough, estrogen helps the body retain sodium. So again, this is one of those moments where you have to recognize you can't talk about these hormones by themselves. They're constantly interacting with one another and cannot be discussed in a vacuum. Estrogen and progesterone both play a lifetime protective role against cardiovascular disease. Ovulation and robust progesterone levels can protect from several cardiovascular risk factors, such as high blood pressure, inflammation, triglycerides, weight gain, and endothelial or blood vessel function. There are clinical studies that document ovulation's power to prevent heart attacks later in life and we will need more randomized control trials until this is fully proven. We may also want to note from episode 23 that having PCOS carries an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, and one of the main symptoms of PCOS is ovulatory disturbance and higher androgens. So again, we see a connection between ovulation and long-term heart health. Next, let's talk about ovulation's effect on the brain. Studies show that progesterone supports the normal development of neurons in the brain and is an important agent affecting many central nervous system functions and even has a protective effect on damaged brain tissue from injury or stroke. Female animals are known to recover faster from brain injuries because of the increased circulation of estrogen and progesterone. Progesterone works through several mechanisms such as anti-inflammatory, neurotrophic, and some antioxidant properties which protect the breakdown of neuron cell membranes. Ovulation is also intimately tied to the thyroid and metabolism. The thyroid, which is located in your throat, is a small gland that manufactures thyroid hormones. It's essential for all metabolic activity, including ovulation. Two hormones directly affect ovarian function, T3 and T4 and the ovaries have receptors to those hormones. T3 and T4 help egg growth and maturation through synergizing with follicle-stimulating hormone. It also plays a role in progesterone and estrogen production because T3 and T4 also stimulate the absorption of intestinal and liver cholesterol. This cholesterol is then used as a building block of every sex hormone that you make. The thyroid hormones also contribute to egg fertilization and embryo viability. The thyroid, along with estrogen itself, enhances insulin sensitivity, which is important to keeping your cycling hormones functioning properly. Like in the case of PCOS, if you are insulin resistant, your ovaries make more testosterone than they need, which disrupts ovulation. Progesterone stimulates thyroid function and increases metabolic rate during the second half of the menstrual cycle. Think about how your temperature rises after ovulation. You essentially need more energy for that, and therefore your metabolism is increased. 
We also know that by taking our basal body temperature over the course of a whole cycle, we can see the range of metabolic function. I was able to diagnose my own hypothyroidism by seeing consistently low temperatures in the first three months I began charting. Four years later, my temperatures have raised almost one degree into a normal thyroid metabolic range. If you are having thyroid issues, I highly suggest using the basal body temperature to track your progress over time. Next, I'll talk about ovulation and breasts. When we go through menarche, that is our first menstruations, and also puberty generally, our breasts start to develop as they're influenced by the presence of estrogen. However, we don't immediately begin ovulating, or thereby receiving progesterone. It could be as long as a year before one starts ovulating after the pubescent hormones start to kick in. When ovulation begins in teens, the areola of the breast will actually become larger and darker. Progesterone then becomes necessary for the breast to mature. In this way, both estrogen and progesterone can contribute to breast cell growth and proliferation. However, over time, estrogen continues to stimulate cell growth, whereas progesterone stops the excessive cell growth, contributing to cell maturation and differentiation. These mature cells are less prone to becoming cancerous in the presence of progesterone. Anovulation and low levels of serum progesterone have been associated with significantly higher risk of breast cancer in premenopausal women. Progesterone also prevents breast soreness, lumpiness, or fibrocystic disease. These hormones have a huge connection to your gut as well. Intestinal bacteria serve many important functions, including the ability to influence your menstrual cycle hormones. These microorganisms are essential to the way we process nutrients and digest food. Just like the compost is comprised of microorganisms which turn nutrients into plant-soluble nutrients, more on that in episode 2 if you're interested, our gut microbiome helps us take in nutrients in the nutrient forms that our bodies can take in to create energy. So they facilitate a conversion process for us, which without them we would not survive. You could also say that we're just a habitat for microbes. The gut can release chemicals which regulate your mood, immune system, and metabolism. Particularly, the microbiome affects estrogen. It's the main method through which we excrete estrogen. As we know, estrogen is made during the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle in the ovaries. It then moves around the body, going to various organs that it's needed at, like the uterus or the breasts and then it reaches the liver. The liver inactivates this estrogen and sends it to the intestines to stay inactive and to be excreted by the body. This is what we call a normal path of estrogen cycling. However, when certain kinds of intestinal microorganisms are present, especially gram-negative bacteria, which is known for causing disease, they make an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. This enzyme reactivates estrogen in the intestines. That estrogen re-enters the body instead of being excreted, causing symptoms of estrogen excess. This is what we call impaired estrogen regulation. Impaired estrogen regulation can have widespread implications on the body, such as ovarian cysts, uterine fibroids, autoimmune disease, and breast cancer. 
to connect this, most of your immune system also lives in your gut. Estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone all affect the immune system function. Estrogen interacts with the immune cells by attaching to its receptors and changing the cell processes. In a healthy menstrual cycle, we only have a short period of high estrogen in the follicular phase. During the follicular phase, you have higher levels of antibodies and therefore an increased inflammatory response, and estrogen is at least partially responsible for this. However, consistently high or prolonged exposure to estrogen, even estrogen from your own body, is correlated to higher disease and cancer risk, such as breast cancer. Progesterone, and here's that balance again, suppresses the immune system, and you have a lower inflammatory response in the latter half of your cycle. This is believed to prevent immune cells from attacking a fertilized egg and disrupting an implantation. So with a healthy menstrual cycle, you're going through two main immune system phases of being more sensitive or inflammatory, and then less sensitive or less inflammatory. So you can see how these cycling hormones have a huge impact on how our immune system functions from day to day. The last physical effects I'm going to talk about in regards to ovulation are on hair and skin. Ovulation, or more specifically the progesterone produced from it, is essential for hair and skin health. Progesterone helps protect hair follicles from the hair thinning effects of testosterone, DHT, and estrogen. To understand this in greater detail, you have to learn a little bit about progesterone. The body's natural progesterone is antiandrogenic. This is because progesterone is an inhibitor of the enzyme 5-alpha reductase. This is an enzyme that can convert testosterone into DHT, which is dihydrotestosterone, a more potent form of androgen. And DHT is believed to be a main cause of pattern hair thinning and hair loss. Therefore, progesterone stops the conversion of testosterone, which we do need in small amounts, to DHT, resulting in faster growing, healthier hair. Both estrogen and progesterone receptors can be found in the skin as well, contributing to skin elasticity, firmness, circulation, and strength. Progesterone's antiandrogenic qualities through the inhibition of enzyme 5-alpha reductase also result in less sebum or skin oil and therefore fewer breakouts. Progesterone is key to keeping DHT levels down and halting these unwanted androgenic symptoms. Lastly, I really want to discuss the mental and emotional effects of ovulation. Um, this is something that for me is really personal because when I took ovulatory suppressing drugs, I definitely felt the mental and emotional effects of losing out um, on ovulation and especially with mood. And here's, here's the connection. Estrogen increases the secretion of oxytocin and the sensitivity of its receptor in the brain. It also boosts dopamine and triggers the release of serotonin, thereby impacting our mood and our sleep patterns. You could say that estrogen is a feel-good hormone by way of increasing serotonin availability. Ironically, estrogen is often blamed for PMS symptoms. But as you've probably heard me say a few times now, we don't have estrogen in the post-ovulatory phase in high amounts. So it's interesting the way that our culture views estrogen 
it often has us accepting these myths that are divergent from the way that our hormones actually function and cycle. And to talk about progesterone in relation to mood, progesterone is such an amazing hormone and we just don't learn to appreciate it. Progesterone enhances the function of serotonin receptors. It stimulates the brain to sleep and can even help with insomnia. Progesterone converts into a metabolite called allopregnenolone, which is a neurosteroid that specifically targets GABA receptors in the brain, which promotes anti-anxiety and better sleep. This is also why we may feel more tired in the luteal or premenstrual phase. We're actually just feeling the calming allopregnenolone effect. Proper levels of progesterone will stabilize the hypothalamic pituitary axis, the switchboard for your hormones for the entire body. It can also prevent PMS symptoms by the calming effects of allopregnenolone and assist with the removal of histamine, thereby calming inflammation. Not only do we see changes in the cycle with estrogen and progesterone, we also see them with testosterone. Our ovaries make testosterone because we do need it in small amounts. It reaches its peak in the fertile window around the time of ovulation. This is connected to your libido, as libido increase may have a direct correlation to testosterone as well as luteinizing hormone, which is the trigger for the release of the egg. Genital blood flow and thoughts of sexual fantasy and desire also increase around ovulation. The connection between mood and libido is obvious. If we feel good, we want to have sex more, we're happier and more attracted to our partner. I also have to say that, you know, despite this discussion on libido and ovulation being connected hormonally, I want to have sex at all parts of the menstrual cycle. However, through understanding fertility awareness, I've become more keen to what types of sexual experiences I want to have depending on where in the cycle I am, and a partner that has also learned to understand that as well. So, though there is a connection, I wouldn't say it's deterministic, meaning that our libido is not determined by the presence of these hormones, um, but rather that they exhibit an increase in libido. And jumping off that a little bit, one's choice in partner can even be affected by the cycling hormones. Studies report greater attraction to their partners and greater attraction overall during the fertile phase where estrogen and testosterone are present. And this could also impact the way your partner smells to you and other sort of attraction features. Lastly, I want to talk about brain clarity with ovulation, as I've learned recently that regular ovulation may lead to improved cognitive functioning, clarity of mind, more energy, and more determination. You may be more competitive, have sharper speaking skills, better short-term memory, and decision-making skills during the fertile window. So I would love to learn even more about how this brain clarity may be connected to the cycling hormones as another sort of side effect of ovulatory suppression that I experienced had to do with brain clarity. I felt like I was in a brain fog. So um, beginning to understand that ovulation may have some effect on brain clarity really makes sense to me now um, because especially when I got off of contraceptives, I felt completely different brain-wise. Um, so 
that is something to note as well. So I know that that is a ton of information. Um, understanding ovulation, not just in terms of being at risk for pregnancy, but as the necessary hormonal process of ovulation, it can give you a whole new perspective on the whole menstrual cycle and what it's for. The menstrual bleed being taboo and suppressed across the world has been kind of the main focus and a lot of advocacy and the work of demystification. And we must also, in my opinion, demystify ovulation and the ovulatory hormones because we can unlock this wealth of information about ourselves by understanding the menstrual cycle as a whole and the way it works in these feedback loops and balances. So I hope that the information I provided can help you begin to understand why ovulation matters and why I join many other people who menstruate in a campaign of body literacy, as well as having the right to ovulation. I'm also going to be accepting questions through my email, famtaughtme at gmail.com. If you have a question you'd like me to answer at the end of a show about any topic, please send it my way. I'm going to do my very best to answer everyone's questions. Today's question comes from Anonymous. I was wondering if I could hear your thoughts on a conversation I had with a friend, given your knowledge around menstruation. They were saying how throughout history, menstruators have typically had long breaks from periods due to pregnancy and breastfeeding. Their idea was that it's unrealistic to expect the body to support a monthly period for 40 plus years, especially if you aren't having kids. Your recent threads on how ovulation regulates hormones have been really fascinating, and I'm wondering how that plays out when someone goes long periods without ovulating due to pregnancy or breastfeeding. First off, wow, I love this question, so thank you so much for asking something that has intrigued me for a while. Basically, in this equation, we have to kind of take out the monthly period as the focus of the conversation. During menstruation, there isn't a whole lot going on hormonally, as it is a drop in hormone levels that actually induces a menstruation. So this is what I try to show people through the process of fertility awareness. So with all of that said, the main hormonal event of the menstrual cycle is ovulation, not menstruation. And this typically occurs mid-cycle. Ovulation begins during menarche, which I've said earlier is your first menstruations in life. This is a facet of puberty. So yes, you're becoming more sexually mature and you're becoming fertile. But it's also a little bit more complicated than that. The hormones of ovulation, they help you make what will become your adult bone and muscle. Essentially, the hormones help you to gain your adult strength, body, and mind. Each month, your ovulation is how you make 90% of the estrogen you need and roughly 97% of the progesterone that you need. Estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone are traditionally understood as sex hormones as they relate to sexual reproduction. But through more modern research, we're realizing they intersect with several other systems of the body. This means it affects the way your body processes insulin your thyroid, your metabolism, your skin and your hair, maintaining your bone density, protecting against cardiovascular disease and certain types of cancers, particularly breast and endometrial cancer. We also know that properly balanced cycling of estrogen and progesterone have positive impacts on mood, libido, brain clarity, and energy. 
So ovulation is a process of the release of the egg, but it can also be understood through the hormones that it gives us during the process. For the menstruating body, this is like getting your monthly dose of hormones that make you feel good, keep you healthy, and protect your body from long-term disease risk. So in this way, it is in fact realistic for your body to want to ovulate during your menstruating years, and this is because it serves other reasons and other functions besides reproduction. Ovulation doesn't tax the body, rather it is a process of hormonal rejuvenation. The pregnant body does something really amazing too. Because during pregnancy you wouldn't be ovulating for the longer period of time, you would think you'd become deficient in those ovulatory hormones you need, but instead pregnancy gives you those hormones again, but in much greater levels. Both estrogen and progesterone are present in higher levels than a normal menstrual cycle during pregnancy, and you can actually see this on the fertility awareness chart. Labor and birth is later induced by a sharp drop in progesterone and remains low during the breastfeeding period. Progesterone stops you from lactating. So in a way, the pregnant body is an overdose of those hormones and breastfeeding is a short period of lack before regular ovulation would resume again. So ovulation is like the slow and steady way to make your hormones and pregnancy is like this fast and dramatic way to make them. I try to teach people that even if you never want to have a pregnancy, you do want to have those benefits of consistent ovulation. There is, in my opinion, a little misreading of history here as well. Though ancient people perhaps had more cultural openness to having large families or being younger parents, because people had a better awareness of their fertility and they had access to midwives who used herbs, it is documented that ancient people regulated their fertility with contraceptives and abortions. One, because it would be super dangerous for young, really young menstruators to carry a pregnancy. Two, because the choice to terminate wasn't culturally shameful. And three, because saving the life of a pregnant person is necessary sometimes, just like this is today. So the idea that ancient people were constantly pregnant and breastfeeding feeds more into a myth than it does into historical fact. Nor is it a reason to argue that we don't need an ovulatory cycle, because people who are pregnant also make ovulatory hormones through the process of pregnancy. And the placenta is even an endocrine gland. So I hope this can clarify some things. One, ancient people were not necessarily always pregnant. Two, when we are pregnant, we make a lot of hormones. Three, when we're ovulating, we make a steady dose of hormones. Four, when we suppress ovulation, we go long periods of time without those hormones. Steroid drugs do not metabolize the same way as our homemade hormones, so we do not get the same health outcomes. And five, your body doesn't have to support a monthly period because your monthly period or as it should be read, your ovulation supports you. Of course, we have terrible body literacy and sex education. Plus, we have a whole history of gynecology, which has pathologized our bodies. And currently, we have a serious medical misogyny problem and lack of proper research and treatment. So it's not easy to just explain these facts to someone without context because we're taught so many myths about the body and how it works. I support anyone who does not want to become pregnant, and I believe that is an absolute right that you have in your body. 
I also support everyone in finding a balance with your menstrual cycle that makes you feel good rather than bad or exhausted. That is, of course, the longer and harder process, but the one that I know from my work is the most important. So many people out there suffering or in pain with their menstrual cycle, of course they don't want to deal with the cycle. But we aren't taught how to properly care for our cycles or decode them, so it leaves us very lost and very reliant. And I don't think that we should have to suffer or be lost as part of living in our bodies. And this is the reason why I refuse to back down on sharing information which can change lives and help people enact dramatic changes that can improve their quality of life. We no longer need to feed into the idea that we're born with a cursed body or that we're destined to be in pain with our menstrual cycle. By understanding the cycle of ovulation, you can begin to flow with the body and respect its needs. Once you start collecting information about yourself to this degree, you'll probably be surprised at what can be garnered and the value that you can find in all of this. So this is not deterministic, as I've seen my own charts change over the course of four years. As I healed and as I focused on targeting areas of my body that needed to be strengthened. And my hope is that you too will find your own value in your own unique bodies. We are all different and this is as much an experiment for me as it is a declaration from me. And we are all amassing this information together. And I think that's very powerful. So I look forward to the wisdom that it will bring me throughout my life. And I hope that it will bring you some as well. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please recommend it. I'm now available on Spotify, so you can find me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Anchor. Please rate and review me as it helps more folks find the show. This episode is brought to you by my Fertility Awareness Education Initiative, hashtag FamTaughtMe. This is where I'm blogging and compiling my fertility awareness work. You can follow me on Instagram at FamTaughtMe to learn more. I'm also available for one-on-one consultations, and I'd love to work with you on your menstrual challenges. This concludes episode 25 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.